The following is a conversation with Christopher Capazzola, a historian at MIT specializing in the history of politics and war in modern American history, especially about the role of World War I in defining the trajectory of the United States and our human civilization in the 20th and 21st centuries. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Wealthfront for financial help, Inside Tracker for biological insight, Element for salty goodness, and Simply Safe for home security. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I tried to make this interesting, but if you skip, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Wealthfront savings and automated investing accounts to help you build wealth and save for the future. In general, I'm somebody that tries to avoid concrete plans. I said kind of goals and follow my heart. But what I mean by that sometimes is that I'm still investing into the future. I'm just not doing it in an overly structured way such that I listen to what my gut tells me will create a better future for me. The thing I really learned on the financial side of things is that there's a lot of companies, a lot of banks, a lot of services that make investing really difficult. And the difficulty comes from the interface of the website. I can't tell you how many services I've used in the past that don't get this right. Anyway, that's like the biggest thing I can say that's positive about Wealthfront. It's easy to invest and it's fun. You should go check it out at wealthfront.com slash Lex. You'll get a $50 bonus with a $500 deposit. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. They have a bunch of plans, most of which have blood tests. You got blood data, DNA data, fitness tracker data, all of that is shoved into a machine learning algorithm and the output is a suggestion, a prediction for the kind of lifestyle changes that are best for you. I'm just a huge believer in the personalization aspect. My refrigerator should not be designed for the general consumer. It should be designed for me. You know, after the first few dates together, we really form an intimacy. And what intimacy really means (laughs) is collecting a lot of data about each other. That's what a relationship is, privacy, encrypted consensual surveillance. (laughs) I'm trying to put a romantic spin on uh, surveillance and it's not working. Now, that's not what Inside Tracker is doing at all. It's just using your data in a secure way to make recommendations. And that, my friends, is a positive future I love. Get special savings for a limited time when you go to insidetracker.com slash Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Element spelled L-M-N-T. It's an electrolyte drink mix that I drink many, many, many times a day. It's a source of happiness and joy. It's a source of health. It's a source of deliciousness in my life. It's almost like a dessert drink. And again, low carb is great. I love all kinds of flavors. Now, most of the time, my favorite go-to element, I think it's called watermelon salt. I should probably know this since I've been drinking incredible amounts of it over the past year. Again, I love it. On a low carb diet, when I'm fasting, 
getting the electrolytes right is hugely important. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and that's element is my go-to for the basic level of electrolytes that I need for all the crazy physical and mental challenges I take on. Get a sample pack for free with any purchase. Try it at drinkelement.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Simply Safe, a home security company designed to be simple and effective. And in fact, it delivers in that design because it is simple and effective. And I am currently protected by it. I'm sitting in a place that has Simply Safe installed and it's keeping me safe. It's, I guess, the first layer of physical security around me. And I take my security extremely seriously at every level, including cybersecurity, everything, the whole thing. Now, one of the best ways to be secure is to make sure that the security system you set up, whatever that is, is super easy. And that's exactly what Simply Safe does. I guess I just realized that the word simply <laughs> is inside the name Simply Safe. It really is simple and it really does keep you safe. That's that's a really good uh, company name. Anyway, I love it. I think you'll love it too. Uh, go to simplysafe.com slash Lex to customize your system and claim your free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. This is the Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Christopher Capazzola. Let's start with a big and difficult question. How did World War I start? On the one hand, World War I started uh, because of a series of events in the summer of 1914 uh, that brought uh, sort of the major powers of Europe into conflict with one another. But I actually think it's more useful to say that World War I started at least a generation earlier when rising powers, particularly Germany, started devoting more and more of their resources toward military affairs and naval affairs. This sets off an arms race in Europe. It sets off a rivalry uh, over the colonial world and who will control the resources in Africa and Asia. And so by the time you get to the summer of 1914, and in a lot of ways, I say the war has already begun. And this is just the match that lights the flame. So the capacity for war was brewing within like the the leaders and within the populace. They started accepting sort of slowly through the culture propagated this idea that we can go to war. It's a good idea to go to war. It's a good idea to expand and dominate others, that kind of thing. Maybe not put in those clear terms, but just a sense that military action is the way that nations operate at the global scale. Yes, yes and, right. So yes, um, there's a sense that the military can be the solution to political conflict uh, in Europe itself. And the and is that war and, and military conflict are already happening, right? Uh, that there's war, particularly in Africa, in North Africa, in the Middle East, um, in the Balkans. Conflict is already underway. Um, and the European powers haven't faced off against each other. They've usually faced off against an asymmetrical conflict against much less powerful states. Um, but, you know, in some ways that, that war is already underway. So do you think it was inevitable? Because World War One is brought up as a case study where it seems like uh, a few 
accidental leaders and a few accidental events or one accidental event led to the war. And if you change that one little thing, it could have avoided the war. Your sense is the, the, uh, the drums of war have been beating for quite a while and it would have happened almost no matter what or very likely to have happened. Yes, historians never like to say things are inevitable. Um, and certainly, you know, there were people who could have chosen a different path, um, both in the short term and the long term. Um, but fundamentally, um, there were uh, irreconcilable conflicts in the system of empires in the world in 1914. Uh, I can't see, uh, you know, it didn't have to be this war, but it, had, it probably had to be a war. So there was the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's France and Great Britain. U.S. Could the U.S. be called an empire at that moment yet? <laughs> when, uh, when do you graduate yeah. to empire status? Um, well, certainly after after 1898, with the acquisition of the former territories of the Spanish Empire, you know, the United States has formal colonial possessions, um, and it has sort of mindsets of of rule and and military acquisition that would define em empire in a kind of more informal sense. So you would say you would put the blame or the responsibility of starting World War I into the hands of the German Empire and Kaiser Wilhelm II? You know, that's a really uh, tough call to make. Um, and, you know, that deciding that is going to keep historians in business for the next 200 years. Um, uh, I think there are people who would lay all of the blame um, uh, on the Germans, right? And, you know, who would point toward a generation of, of arms buildup, um, you know, alliances that, that Germany made and promises that they made to, uh, to their allies in the Balkans, um, to the Austro-Hungarians. Um, and so, yes, there's an awful lot of responsibility there. Um, there has been a trend lately to say, um, no, it's no one's fault. Right, that uh, you know that all of the various powers literally were sleepwalking into the war, right? They backed into it inadvertently. I think that lets everyone a little too much off the hook, right? And so I think in, in between is uh, you know I would put the blame on the system of empires itself on the system, uh, but in that system, the actor that sort of carries the most responsibility is definitely Imperial Germany. So the leader of Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Joseph I, his nephew's Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he was assassinated. And so that didn't have to lead to a war. And then uh, the leader of the German Empire, Kaiser Wilhelm II, pressured, sort of uh, <laughs> st started talking trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, boiling the water that ultimately resulted in the explosion, um, plus all the other players. So, w what can you describe the dynamics of how that unrolled? What well, U.S. What's the role of U.S.? What's the role of France? What's the role of Great Britain, Germany, and Austro-Hungarian Empire? Yeah, over the course of about uh, four weeks, right, following the assassination of uh, of the Archduke um, in Sarajevo. Um, it sort of triggers a series of uh, political conflicts and ultimately ultimatums, um, sort of demanding um, sort of that 
that one or other power sort of stand down in response to to the demands of either um, you know Britain, France, or 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 in turn um, Germany or Russia. At the same time, that those alliances kind of trigger automatic responses um, from the other side, and so it escalates. Um, and once that escalation is combined with the call up of military troops, then none of those powers wants to be sort of the last one to kind of get ready for conflict. So even throughout it, they are, they think they are getting ready in a defensive maneuver, um, and they if they think if there is conflict, well, it might be a skirmish, it might be you know sort of a standoff, uh, it could be solved with diplomacy later because diplomacy is failing now. Um, that turns out not to be the case. Diplomacy fails; it's not a skirmish; it becomes a massive war. And the Americans are watching all of this from the sidelines. Uh, they have very little influence over what happens that summer. How does it go from a skirmish between a few nations to a global war? Is there a place where there's a phase transition? Yeah, I think the phase transition is in over the course of the fall of 1914, um, when the Germans make a, an initial sort of bold move into France. In many ways, they're fighting the last war, the Franco-Prussian War um, of, 18, of 1870. Um, and they really do sort of, um, you know, kind of want to have a quick sort of uh, lightning strike in some ways against France um, to kind of bring the war to a speedy conclusion. Uh, France turns out uh, to be able to fight back um, more effectively than the Germans expected. Um, and then uh, the battle lines sort of harden and then behind that, uh, the, 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 the French and the Germans, as well as the British on, on the uh, side of the French, start digging in, literally, right? Um, and digging trenches, trenches that at first are, you know, three feet deep to, you know, to avoid shelling from artillery, then become six feet, 10 feet deep, you know, two miles wide, um, that include telegraph wires, that include whole hospitals in the back. And then at that point, um, you know, the, the front is, is locked in place. And the only way to break that is sort of basically dialing the war up to 11, right? Sort of massive numbers of troops, massive efforts, um, no, none of which work, right? And so the war is stuck in this, but that's the, that's the phase transition right there. What were the machines of war in that case? You mentioned trenches. What were the guns used? What was the size of guns? What are we talking about? What, what, what did Germany start accumulating that led up to this war? One of the things that we see immediately is the Industrial Revolution of the previous 30 or 40 years brought uh, to bear on warfare. Right, and so you see, sort of machine guns. You see artillery. Uh, you know, these are the kind of the the key weapons of war on both sides. Right, the vast majority of battlefield casualties are from artillery shelling um, from one side to another, um, not you know, sort of rifle or or even sort of you know, machine gun kind of uh, attacks. In some ways, the the weapons of war are are human beings, right? Um, you know, tens of thousands of them poured over the top um, in these sort of waves uh, to kind of try to break through the enemy lines, and it would work for a little while, um, you know. But but holding the territory that had been gained often proved to be even more demanding than than gaining it, and so often, um, you know, each side would retreat back into the trenches and and wait for another day. And how did Russia, how did Britain, how did 
France get pulled into the war? Well, I suppose the France one is the easy one. But what what is the order of events here? Right. How it becomes a global war. Yeah. So Britain, France, and, and Russia uh, are at this time and in they're an alliance. Um, and so the, the the conflicts, you know, in the summer of 1914 that lead uh, sort of to the declarations of war happen sort of one after another, right? Um, at the, in August, of, in late August of 1914. Um, and all three powers essentially come in at the same time um, because they have promised to do so um, through a series of alliances um, conducted secretly in the years before 1914 that committed them to defend one another. Uh, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire um, have their own sort of set of secret uh, agreements that also commit them to defend one another. Um, and what this does is it, it sort of brings them all into, into conflict at, at the exact same moment. They're also, for many of these countries, bringing not just their, their national armies, uh, but also their empires into the conflict, right? So Britain and France, of course, have, you know, enormous uh, sort of global empires. They, they begin mobilizing soldiers as well as raw materials. Germany uh, has, you know, less of an overseas empire. Russia and the Ottoman Empire, of course, have their own sort of hinterland, um, you know, within the empire. And very soon, you know, sort of all of the warring powers are, are bringing the entire world in, into, into the conflict. Did they have a sense of how deadly the war is? I mean, this is another scale of death and destruction. At the beginning, no, but very quickly. Um, the scale of the devastation of these sort of massive over-the-top uh, attacks on trenches is apparent to the military officers, and it very quickly becomes apparent even at home. Uh, you know, there is, of course, censorship of the battlefield, and, and you know, specific details don't reach people. But, you know, for civilians and in any of the, the warring powers, they know fairly soon how destructive the war is. Uh, and to me, that's always been a real sort of... Um, puzzle, right? So that by the time the United States comes to decide whether to join the war in 1917, they know what the, exactly what they're getting into, right? They're not backing into the war in the ways that the, the European powers did. Um, you know, they've seen the devastation, they've seen photographs, they've seen injured soldiers, um, and they make that choice anyway. When you say they, do you mean the leaders or the people? Did uh, the the death and destruction reach the minds of the American people by that time. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, the, the, we don't, in 1917, have the mass media that we have now, but, um, but you know, there are images in newspapers, there are newsreels um, that play at the movie theaters. Um, and, of course, some of it is sanitized, but, um, but that combined with press accounts, often really quite descriptive press accounts, um, gory accounts, reached you know, anyone who cared to read them. You know, certainly plenty of people didn't follow the, the news, felt it was far away. But but most Americans who cared about the news knew how devastating this war was. Yeah, there's something that happens that I recently visited Ukraine for a few weeks. There's something that happens with the human mind as you get away from the actual front where the bullets are flying, like literally one kilometer away. You start to not feel the war. There, you'll hear an explosion. You'll see an explosion. And you start to like get it assimilated to it, or you start to get used to it. And then when you get as far away from like currently what is Kiev, you start to you know the war's going on. Everybody around you is fighting in that war, but it's still somehow distant. 
And I think with the United States, with the ocean between, even if you have the stories everywhere, it still is somehow distant, like the way a movie is. Maybe, yeah, like a, a movie or a video game, it's somewhere else. Even if your loved ones are going, or you are going to fight. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. And in some ways that's true even for the home fronts in, in Europe, you know, except for the areas where, you know, in Belgium and France, where the, the war is, you know, right there in your backyard. Um, for other people, yeah, there's a there's a distance. And soldiers, of course, feel this very strongly when they, um, European soldiers, when they're able to go home on leave, um, often, you know, deeply resent the, you know, the, what they see as the, the luxury that, that civilians are living in during the war. So how did U.S. enter the war? Who was the president? What was the dynamics involved? And um, could it have stayed out? To answer your last question first, yes, right? Um, that the United States could have, uh, could have stayed out of the First World War uh, as a military power. Um, the United States could not have ignored the war completely, right? It shaped everything, right? It shaped... Uh, it shaped trade, it shaped goods and services, agriculture, you know, whether, you know, there was a crop coming, whether there were immigrants coming um, across the Atlantic to work in American factories, right? So the U.S. can't ignore the war. Uh, but the U.S. makes a choice in 1917 to enter the war um, by declaring war, right, uh, on, on Germany and Austria. Uh, and in that sense, um, this is a war of choice, um, but it's, it's kicked off by a series of events. Right, so uh, President Woodrow Wilson um, has been president through the, this entire period of time. Uh, he has just run uh, the, in the 1916 presidential election on a campaign to keep the United States out of war. Uh, but then in early 1917, the Germans in some ways um, sort of twist the Americans' arms, right? The, the Germans' uh, sort of high command comes to understand that, you know, that they're stuck, right? Uh, that they... You know, they're stuck in this trench warfare. They need a big breakthrough. Their one big chance is to kind of, is to sort of break the blockade, uh, to push through uh, that, that the British have imposed on them, to break the uh, breakthrough against, um, against France. And so they, they do. And along with this, they start sinking ships on the Atlantic, including American ships. The Germans know full well this will draw the United States into war. But the Germans look at the United States at this moment, um, a relatively small army, a relatively small navy, a country that, at least on paper, is deeply divided about whether to join the war. And so they say, let's do it, right? They're not going to get any American soldiers there in time, right? Uh, you know, it was a gamble, but I think uh, probably the, their best chance. They took that gamble, they, they lost, right, in part because... French resistance was strong, in part because Americans mobilized much faster and in much greater numbers than the Germans thought they would. So the American people were divided. The American people were absolutely divided about whether to enter this war, right? From 1914 to 1917, there is a searing debate um, across the political spectrum. It doesn't break down easily on party lines um, about whether it was in the U.S. interest to do this, whether American troops should be sent abroad, um, whether, you know... Uh, Americans would end up just being cannon fodder for the European empires. Um, eventually, 
as American ships are sunk, um, first in the Lusitania in 1915, then in much greater numbers in 1917, uh, you know, the, the tide starts to turn and Americans feel that, you know, our response is necessary. And the actual declaration of war in Congress is pretty lopsided, uh, but it's not unanimous by any means. Lopsided towards, towards entering the war. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting because uh, there's echoes of that in, in later wars where Congress seems to, nobody wants to be the guy that says no to war for some reason. Once you sense that, uh, in terms of, sorry, in terms of in politicians, because then you appear weak. But I, w I wonder if that was always the case. So you make the case that World War One is largely responsible for defining what it means to be an American citizen. So in which way does it define the American citizen? When you think about citizenship, what it means is two things. First of all, what are your rights and obligations? What is sort of the legal citizenship um, that, that you have um, as a citizen of the United States or any other state? Uh, and the second is a more amorphous definition of like, what does it mean to belong, right? To be part of America, right? To feel American, to, uh, you know, to love it or hate it or be willing to die for it, right? Um, and both of those things really are crystal clear um, in terms of their importance during the war, right? So both of those things are on the table. Um, being uh, a citizen who is a citizen who isn't um, matters. So people who had never carried passports or, or you know, any, anything before suddenly have to. Um, but also what it means to be an American, right? Uh, to feel like it, to be part of this project is also kind of being defined and, and enforced during World War I. So project, you know, is a funny way to put a global war, right? So uh, can you tell the story, perhaps that's a good example of it, of the James Montgomery Flags 1916 poster that reads, I want you. Right. A lot of people know this poster, I think in its original form or in its memeified form, I don't know, but we know this poster and we don't know where it came from, or most Americans, I think, uh, me included, didn't know where it came from and it actually comes from 1916. Does this poster represent the birth of something new in America? which is a, um, a commodification or, I don't know, that propaganda machine that says what it means to be an American is somebody that fights for their country. Yeah, so the image, it's in fact, I think one of the most recognizable images, not only in the United States, but in the entire world, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you, could, you can bring it almost anywhere on earth in 2022 and people will know what it refers to, right? And so this is a, a, an image that circulated first um, as a magazine cover, later as a recruitment poster, um, where the figure is Uncle Sam, sort of pointing at the viewer um, with his finger, sort of pointing and saying, I want you, right? And the I want you is a recruitment uh, tool to, to join the U.S. Army. And this image, you know, really kind of starts as a kind of like I said, a magazine cover in 1916 by the artist James Montgomery Flagg. It initially appears under the heading, what are you doing for preparedness? Meaning to prepare in case war comes to the United States. Right? At that point in 1916, we're still neutral. Um, in 1917, um, uh, it's turned into a U.S. Army recruiting poster. 
Um, and then it, it reappears in World War II, reappears generations after. You know, like you said, it's now uh, gets remixed, memefied. Um, it's all, it's all over the place. I think for me, it's a it's a turning point. It's a sort of window into American culture at a crucial moment in our history. Um, where the federal government is now embarking on a war overseas that's going to make enormous demands um, on its citizens. And at the same time, where sort of technologies of mass production and mass media and what uh, we would probably call propaganda um, are being sort of mobilized um, for, the, for the first time in, in this new kind of way. Well, in some sense, is it fair to say that this, the empire is born the expanding empire is born from the Noam Chomsky perspective kind of empire that seeks to have military influence elsewhere in the world. Yes, but I think as historians, we need to be at least as interested in what happens to the people who are getting pointed to by Uncle Sam, right? Rather than just the one, you know, whether he's pointing at us. Um, and, you know, so, so yes, he's asking us to do that, but, but how do we respond? And the people responded. So the people are ultimately the the machines of history, the mechanisms of history. It's not the Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam can only do so much if the people aren't willing to step up. Absolutely. They and you know the American people responded for sure, but they didn't build what Uncle Sam asked them to do um, in that poster, right? Um, and I think that's a, you know kind of a crucial aspect that. Uh, you know, there never would have been sort of U global U.S. power without the, the response that begins in World War One. What was the Selective Service Act of 1917? So one of the very first things that Uncle Sam wants you to do, right, is to register for selective service, for the draft, right? Um, and the, the law is passed very soon after the U.S. enters the war. Um, it's sort of, de you know, uh, demanding that all men, uh, first between eight, uh, 21 and 30, then between 18 and 45, register for the draft, um, and they'll be selected um, by a government agency, by a volunteer organization. So it's a requirement to sign it, up. It is a legal requirement to register. Um, not, Of course, not everyone who registers is selected, um, uh, uh, but over the course of the war, 24 million men register, almost 4 million uh, serve in some fashion. What was the response? What was the feeling amongst the American people to have to sign up to the Selective Service Act? Well, have to register. Yeah. This is a this is a bigger turning point than than we might think, right? In some ways, this is a tougher uh, demand of the American public than entering the war. It's one thing to declare war on Germany, right? It's another thing to go down to your local post office uh, and fill out the forms that that allow your own government to send you there to fight. Um, and this is especially important at a time when the federal government doesn't really have any other way to find you unless you actually go and register yourself, right? Um, and so, you know, ordinary people are participating um, in the building of this war machine, but at least a half a million of them don't, right? And simply never fill out the forms, move from one town to another. But you said don't 20 million did? 20 about, something? Yeah, about 24 million uh, register, at least 500,000. Is it surprising to you that that many registered? Since uh, the country was divided? 
it it is, and that's what I I you know sort of tried to dig in to figure out how did how did you get twenty four million people to to register for the draft, and uh, it's certainly not coming from the top down, right? Um, you know, there may be a hundred uh, you know, sort of agents in what's now called the FBI. Um, you know, it's certainly not being enforced from Washington. It's being enforced in, you know, through the the eyes of everyday neighbors, um, you know, through community uh, surveillance, all kinds of ways. Oh, so there was like a pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Interesting. So there was not a significant like uh, anti-war movement as you would see maybe later with Vietnam and things like this. There was a significant movement before 1917. But um, but it becomes very hard to keep up an organized anti-war movement after that, particularly when the government starts shutting down protests. So as the Selective Service Act of 1917 runs up against some of the freedoms, some of the rights that are uh, defined in our founding documents, what was that clash like? What was sacrificed? What freedoms and rights were sacrificed in this process? I mean, I think on some level, the fundamental right, right, uh, is liberty, right? Um, that conscription sort of demands, um, you know, uh, sacrifice um, on the behalf of some for the, for notionally, for the protection of all. So even if you're against the war, you're forced to fight. Right. Yes. Um, you know, and there, there were small uh, provisions for conscientious objectors, um, solely those who had religious objections to all war. Right, not political objections to this war, mm. um, and some, you know, several thousand were able to to take those provisions. But even then, um, they faced uh, social sanction, they faced ridicule, some of them faced uh, intimidation. Um, you know, so those liberty interests, um, both individual freedom, religious freedom, you know, those are some of the first things to go. So, what about freedom of speech? Was there uh, silencing of the press, of the voices of the different people that were object? Uh, yes, absolutely. Right. And so very soon after the Selective Service Act is passed, then you get the Espionage Act, um, which, of course, is back in the news um, in 2022. What's the Espionage Act? The Espionage Act is a sort of omnibus bill. It contains about 10 or different provisions, very few of which have to do with espionage. Um, but one key provision um, basically makes it illegal to say or do anything that would interfere with military recruitment. Right, um, and that that provision is used to shut down uh, radical publications, to shut down German language publications, um, and you know this is really has a chilling impact on speech during the war. Could you put into words what it means to be an American citizen that is in part sparked by World War One? So what is what does that what does that mean? Somebody that's should be willing to sacrifice certain freedoms to fight for their country, um, somebody that's willing to fight to spread freedom elsewhere in the world, sp spread the American ideals. Like what, what, what um, does that begin to tell the story of what it means to be an American? Uh, I think what we see is a change, right? So citizenship during World War I now includes um, uh, the obligation to defend the country, right, to serve, right, and to, if asked, to die for it, right? Um, and we certainly see that. And I think we see the the close linkage of military service and U.S. citizenship coming out of this time period. Um, but 
um, you know, when you start making lots of demands on people to fulfill obligations, in turn, they're going to start demanding rights. Um, and we start to see, not necessarily during the war, but after, more demands for free speech uh, protections, more demands for, for equality, for marginalized groups. Um, and so, you know, obligations and rights are sort of developing in a dynamic relationship. Oh, it's almost like an overreach of power sparked a sense like, oh crap, we can't trust centralized power to abuse, like to drag us into a war. We need, we need to be able to. So there's a, the birth of that tension between the government and the people. It's a a rebirth of it. You know, of course right. that you know that tension is always there, but but uh, in its modern form, I think it comes from this reintensification of it. Yeah. So what about the? You said that World War One gave birth to the surveillance state in the U.S. Can you explain? Yeah, so the Espionage Act, um, you know, sort of empowers uh, federal organizations to watch other Americans. Um, they are particularly interested in anyone who is obstructing the draft, um, anyone who is trying to kind of uh, organize labor or strikes or radical movements, um, and anyone who might have sympathy for for Germany, which basically means you know all German Americans come under surveillance. Initially, um, you know, this is very small scale, um, but um, but soon every government agency gets involved, from the the Treasury Department Secret Service to the Post Office, which is uh, sort of reading mail, to the Justice Department, which mobilizes two hundred thousand volunteers. Yeah, um, you know, it's a, it's a really significant enterprise. Much of it goes away after the war. But of all the things that go away, this core of the surveillance state is the thing that persists um, most most fully. Is this also a place where government, the size of government starts to grow in these different organizations, or maybe creates a momentum for growth of government? Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's exponential growth, right? That, um, you know, that over the course of the war, um, by almost any metric you use, right? The, the size of the federal budget, the number of federal employees, the number of soldiers in the standing army, all of those things skyrocket during the war. They go down after the war, but they never go down to what they were before. And probably gave a momentum for growth over uh, time. Yes, absolutely. Did World War One give birth to the military industrial complex in the United States? So war profiteering, expanding of the war machine in order to financially benefit a lot of parties involved. So I guess I, I would maybe break that into two parts, right? That um, uh, on the one hand, yes, um, the, there is war profiteering. Um, there are investigations of it um, in the years after the war. There's a widespread concern that the profit motive had played a, a, you know, too much of a part um, yeah. in the war. And that's definitely the case. Um, but I think when you try to think of this term military industrial complex, um, it's best, you know, to think of it as, you know, at what point does the one side lock in the other, right? That military choices are shaped by industry, uh, you know, objectives and, and vice versa. Uh, and I don't think that that was fully locked into place during World War I. I think that's really a Cold War phenomenon when the United States is on this intense kind of footing for, for two generations in a row. So industrial is really important there, that is companies. So before then, weapons of war were created, were uh, funded directly by the government. Were, were like, um, like who was manufacturing the weapons of war? 
they were generally manufactured by private industry. Um, uh, there were, of course, ar well, arsenals, sort of 19th century um, iterations where the government would produce its own weapons, um, partly to make sure that they got what they wanted. Um, but, but most of the weapons of war for all of the European powers um, and, and the United States are produced by private industry. So why do you say that the military-industrial complex didn't start then? What was, the, what was the important thing that happened in the Cold War? I think uh, one way to think about it is that it's the Cold War is a point at which it uh, switches from being a dial to a ratchet, right? So during World War One, um, you know, the relationship between the military and industry dials up, um, you know, fast and high, and stays, you know, stays that way, and it dials back down. Mm -hmm. Whereas during uh, the Cold War, um, sort of the relationship between the two often looks more like a ratchet. Yeah, it so goes it becomes up, unstoppable. It goes up again. In in the way that you start, I think the way the military industrial complex is often involved uh, um, discussed is as a system that is unstoppable, right? And like it expands, it almost. I mean, if you take a very cynical view, it creates war so that it can make money. It doesn't just find places where it can help. Through military conflict, it creates tensions that directly or indirectly lead to military conflict that it can then fuel and make money from. That is certainly one of the concerns um, of both people, um, you know, who are critical of the First World War, and then also of Dwight Eisenhower, right, when he's uh, president and and sort of in his uh, farewell address where he sort of introduces the term military-industrial complex. And some of it is about the profit motive, but some of it is a, a fear that that Eisenhower had that no one had an interest in stopping this, right? And that no one had a voice in stopping it, and that the ordinary American could could really do nothing um, to sort of uh, you know to kind of to dial it to dial things down. Is it strange to you that we don't often hear that kind of speech today, with like Eisenhower speaking about the military-industrial complex? So, for example, we'll have people criticizing the spending on the on war efforts, but they're not discussing the yeah the machinery of the military industrial complex, like the the basic way that human nature works, that we get get ourselves trapped in this thing. They're saying like there's better things to spend money on, versus describing a very seemingly natural process of when you build weapons of war, that's gonna lead to more war. Like it pulls you in somehow. Yeah, I would say throughout the Cold War um, and even after the end of it, uh, there has not been a sustained conversation um, in the United States um, about, uh, about our defense establishment, right? What we, you know, what we really need. Um, and um, you know what what serves our interest, um, and uh, and to what extent, um, sort of other things like market forces, profit motives, um, you know, belong in that in that conversation. Uh, what's interesting is that in the generation after the First World War, that was that conversation was on the table, right, um, through a series of, of investigations in the U.S., the Nye Committee, um, in Britain, a Royal Commission, journalistic exposés. You know, this would have been just 
talked about constantly um, in the years between about 1930 and 1936, uh, as people were starting to worry, right, that storm clouds were gathering in Europe again. Yeah, but it always seems like those folks get pushed to the fringes. You're you're made an activist versus a like a versus a thinking leader. Those discussions are often marginalized, um, framed as conspiracy theory, um, et cetera. Um, and um, you know, I think it's it's important to realize that you know, uh, in the generation after World War One, this was a serious civic conversation. It led to you know sort of investigations of defense uh, sort of finance. It led to experiments um, in Britain and France in public finance of, of war material. Uh, and I think those conversations need to be reconvened um, uh, now in the 21st century. Is there any parallels between World War One and the war in Ukraine? The reason I bring it up is because you mentioned sort of there was a hunger for war, a capacity for war that was already established, and the different parties were just boiling the uh, the tensions. So there's a case made that America had a role to play, NATO had a role to play in the current war in Ukraine. Is there some truth to that? Uh, when you think about it in the context of World War One, or is it purely about the specific parties involved, which is Russia and Ukraine? I think it's very easy to draw parallels between World War One uh, and the war in Ukraine, um, but I don't think they really work. Um, that you know, the First World War. Uh, in some ways is generated by a you know fundamental conflict uh, in the, the Euro European system of empires right in the global system of empires um, so in many ways if there's a parallel the war in ukraine is the parallel to some of the conflicts in uh, you know in the mediterranean and the balkans in 1911 to 1913 um, that um you know that then later there was a much greater conflict, right? And so, I think if there's any lessons to be learned um, for how not to, you know, let uh, World War III look like World War One, um, it would be to make sure that um, you know that systems aren't locked into place um, that escalate wars out of out of people's expectations. Well, that, that's I, su I suppose what I was uh, implying that this is the early stages of World War Three, that in the same way that several wolves are licking their chops or whatever the expression is. They're they're creating tension, they're creating military uh, conflict with a kind of unstoppable imperative for a global war. That's, I mean, uh, many kind of people that are looking at this are really worried about that. Now, the, um, the stopping, the forcing function to stop this war is that there's uh, several nuclear powers involved, mm -hmm. which has, at least for now, worked to stop full-on global war. But I'm not sure that's going to be the case. In fact, what is one of the surprising things to me in Ukraine is that still in the 21st century, we can go to something that involves nuclear powers not directly yet, but awfully close to directly, go to a hot war. 
And so do you worry about that, that there's a kind of descent into a World War I type of scenario? Yes, I mean, that that keeps me up at night and I think it should keep uh, you know the citizens of both the United States and Russia uh, up at night. Um, and I think, uh, again, it gets back to what I was saying in, that the, in the summer of 1914, um, even then, um, things that looked um, like a, a march toward war could have been different, right? Um, and so I think it's important for leaders to um, of both countries and of all of the sort of related countries, you know, of Ukraine, of the various NATO powers, um, to really um, sort of imagine off ramps and to imagine alternatives um, and to make them possible. Um, you know, whether it's through diplomacy, whether it's through other formats. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know that that's the only way to prevent sort of greater escalation. What's the difference between World War One and the Civil War in terms of how they defined what it means to be an American, but also uh, the American citizens' relationship with the war, um, what what the leaders were doing? Is there interesting differences in similarities besides the fact yeah. that everybody seems to have forgot about World War One in the United States <laughs> and everyone still remembers Civil War? I mean, it, it's true, um, and uh, you know the. The American Civil War defines American identity um, uh, in some ways, along with the Revolution and the Second World War, um, more so than any other conflict. Um, and you know, it's it's a fundamentally different war, right? It's one uh, because it is a civil war, right? Because um, you know, because of secession, because of the Confederacy, um, you know, this is a, a conflict happening on the territory of the United States between Americans. And so the dynamics are, are, are really quite different, right? So, you know, the, the, the leaders, particularly Lincoln, have a different relationship to the home front, to civilians, um, than, than they, than say Wilson or Roosevelt have in the, in World War One and Two. Also the way you would tell the story of the Civil War, perhaps similar to the way we tell the story of World War Two. there's like a reason to actually fight the war. The way we tell the stories, we're fighting for this ideal that all men are created equal, that the 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 war is over slavery, in part. Perhaps that's a radical, drastic oversimplification of what the war was actually about in the moment. Like, how do you get pulled into an actual war versus a a uh, hot discussion? Mm -hmm. And the same with World War Two. People kind of frame the narrative that it was against evil, mm -hmm. Hitler being evil. I think the key part of that is probably the Holocaust, mm -hmm. is how you can formulate Hitler's being evil. If there's no Holocaust, perhaps there's a case to be made that we wouldn't see World War II as such a uh, quote unquote good war. Uh, that there's an atrocity that had to happen to make it really uh, to be able to tell a clear narrative of why we get into this war. Perhaps such a narrative doesn't exist for World War One, And so that doesn't stay in the American mind. We try to uh, sweep it under the rug, even though overall 16 million people died. So, so to, to you, the difference is in the fact that you're fighting for, uh, for ideas and fighting on, on, on the homeland. But in terms of people's participation you know, um, fighting for your country. 
Was there similarities there? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the Civil War in in both the, the North and the South, uh, troops are raised overwhelmingly um, through volunteer recruitment. Uh, there is a draft in, in both the, the North and the South, but, um, uh, you know, it's it's not significant. Um, only 8% of people of, uh, of Confederate soldiers came in through conscription, um, and so in fact, you know the the mobilization for volunteers often organized locally around individual communities or states um, create sort of multiple identities and, and levels of loyalty, um, where people both in the north and the south have loyalty both to their state regiments, um, to their their sort of community militias, and as well to to the country. They are fighting over the country, right, over the United States, uh, right? and so the and the Union and the Confederacy have conflicting and ultimately irreconcilable visions of that. Um, but but you know that sort of nationalism that comes. Out of uh, out of the Union um, after the victory in the war is a kind of crucial force shaping America uh, ever since. So, what was the neutrality period? Why did U.S. stay out of the war for so long? Like, what was going on in that interesting? Like, what made Woodrow Wilson change his mind? What what uh, what was the in- interesting dynamic there? I always say that the United States entered the war in April of 1917, but Americans entered it right away, right? Um, They entered it, um, you know, some of them actually went and volunteered and fought um, almost exclusively on the side um, of Britain and France. Um, uh, At least 50,000 joined the Canadian army or the British army um, and serve. Um, Millions volunteer, they sent humanitarian aid, I think in many ways, Modern war creates modern humanitarianism, um, and we can see that in the neutrality period. Um, and even if they wanted the, the United States to stay out of the war, a lot of Americans get involved in it by thinking about it, caring about it, you know, arguing about it. Um, and you know, at the same time, they're worried that British propaganda is shaping their news system. They are worried um, uh, that German espionage is undermining them. Um, they're worried that both Britain and Germany are trying to interfere in American elections and American news cycles. Uh, you know, and at the same time, uh, a revolution is breaking out in Mexico, right? So there are sort of you know concerns about uh, what's happening in the Western Hemisphere as well as what's happening in Europe. So World War One was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and it didn't. How did how did World War One pave the way? to World War II. Every nation probably has their own story in this trajectory towards World War II. How did Europe allow World War II to happen? How did the Soviet Union, Russia allow World War II to happen? And how did America allow World War II to happen? And Japan? Yeah, you're right. The answer is different for each country, right? Uh, That in some ways in Germany, um, the culture of defeat um, the experience of defeat at the end of World War I leads to a culture of resentment, recrimination, uh, finger-pointing, blame that um, makes German politics very ugly. Um, as one person puts it, brutalizes uh, German politics. Um, it places and, resentment at the core yes. of the populace and its politics. Yeah. And, you know, so in some ways that lays the groundwork for the kind of politics of, of resentment and hate that, that comes from the, from the Nazis. 
um, you know, for the United States, in some ways, the failure to win the peace, um, uh, you know, uh, sets up the, the possibility for, for the next war, right? That, um, that the United States, uh, you know, through Wilson is sort of crafting a new international order in, in order that there, this will be the war to end all wars. But because the United States failed to join the League of Nations, um, you see the, the United States really sort of on the hook for another generation. Uh, in Asia, the story is more complicated, right? Um, and I think it's worth bearing that in mind that that World War II is a two front war. Um, it's it starts in Asia for its own reasons. Um, World War One is transformative for Japan, right? Um, it is a time of massive economic expansion. Um, a lot of that uh, sort of economic wealth is poured into sort of greater industrialization and militarization. And so when the military wing um, uh, in Japanese politics takes over in the 1930s, they're in some ways uh, flexing muscles that come out of the First World War. Can you talk about the end of World War One, the Treaty of Versailles? Um, how's, what's interesting about that dynamics there, of the parties involved, of uh, how it could have been done differently to avoid the resentment? Is there, or again, is it inevitable? <laughs> So the war ends, and very soon, even before the war is over, um, the the United States in particular is trying to shape the peace, right? And the United States is the central actor um, at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Woodrow Wilson is there. He's presiding. Um, and he knows that he calls the shots. Despite, so he was respected. He was respected, but... Uh, but resentfully, in some ways, by by the the European powers, Britain and France and, and Italy to a lesser extent, who you know felt that they had sacrificed more. Um, they had two goals, right? They wanted to shape um, the the imperial system in order to make sure that their you know kind of fundamental economic structures wouldn't change, and they also wanted to um, sort of weaken Germany as much as possible, right? So that Germany couldn't rise again. What this leads to is a, a peace treaty that, um, you know, maintains some of the fundamental conflicts of the imperial system, and um, makes uh, bankrupts Germany, uh, starves Germany, and kind of feeds this politics of, of resentment um, that make it um, impossible for Germany to kind of participate in a European order. So, people like uh, historian Neil Ferguson, for example, make the case that. If Britain stayed out of World War One, we would have avoided this whole mess, and we would potentially even avoid World War Two. There's kind of counterfactual history. Do you think it's possible to make the case for that? That there was a, a moment, especially in that case, staying out of the war for Britain, that the escalation to a global war could have been avoided, and one that ultimately ends in a deep global resentment. So where Germany is resentful, not just of France or particular nations, but is resentful of the entire, I don't know how you define it, the West or something like this, the entire global world. I wish it were that easy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think, um, it's useful to think in counterfactuals, um, you know, what if? Um, and if you believe, as historians do, in causation, um, then if that one thing causes another, then you also have to believe in counterfactuals, right? That if something hadn't happened, then maybe that wouldn't, you know, that would have worked differently. Um, 
But uh, I think all the things that led to World War I um, are multi-causal and nuanced. And this is what historians do. We make things more complicated. Um, and so, you know, there was no one thing that could have, you know, uh, that, that could have turned the, the tide of history, um, you know, and, you know, oh, if only Hitler had gotten into art school or, oh, if only Fidel Castro had gotten into the major leagues, you know, uh, uh, those are interesting thought experiments, but few, few events in history, I think, are that contingent. Well, Hitler's an example of somebody who's a charismatic leader that seems to have a really disproportionate amount of influence on the tide of history. So, you know, if you look at Stalin, you could imagine that many other people could have stepped into that role. And uh, the same goes for many of the, the other presidents through, or even Mao. Mm -hmm. It seems that there's a singular nature to Hitler that you could play the counterfactual, that if there was no Hitler, you may have not had World War II. He, better than many um, leaders in history, was able to channel the resentment of the populace into a very aggressive expansion of the military and um, I would say skillful deceit of the entire world in terms of his plans and was able to effectively start the war. So uh, is, it, is it possible that, uh, I mean, could Hitler have been stopped? Could we have avoided if he just got into art school? Right. Uh, or again, yeah. do you feel like there's a current of events that was unstoppable? I mean, part of what you're talking about is, uh, is Hitler the individual as a sort of charismatic leader who's able to mobilize, um, you know, the, the nation. Um, and part of it is Hitlerism, right? Um, his own sort of individual ability to play, for example, play off his subordinates against one another yeah. to set up a system and, you know, of that, of that nature that, that in some ways escalates violence, including, um, you know, the violence that leads to the Holocaust. Um, and some of it is also Hitlerism um, as a as a, a leader cult, and we see this in many other sort of uh, you know things where where a political movement um, surrounds one particular individual who may or may not be replaceable. Um, so so yes, um, the World War II we got um, would have been completely different um, if a different um, sort of uh, faction had risen to power in Germany. Um, but, uh, but Europe, you know, depression era Europe was so unstable, um, and democracies collapsed throughout Western Europe over the course of the 1930s, um, you know, whether they had charismatic, uh, uh, totalitarian leaders or not. Have you actually read, uh, one, one book I just recently, um, finished? I'd love to get your opinion from a historian perspective. There's a book called Blitzed Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. It makes a case that drugs played a very large, um, meth essentially, played a very large role in World War II. There's a lot of criticism of this book, saying that it's it, it, uh, kind of to what you're saying, it takes this one little variable and makes it like, this explains everything. So everything about Hitler, everything about the uh, Blitzkrieg, everything about the military, the, the way, the strategy, the decisions could be explained through drugs, or at least implies that kind of thing. Um, and the interesting thing about this book, because Hitler and Nazi Germany is one of the most sort of written about periods of human history, and this was not 
drugs were almost entirely not written about mm -hmm. in, in this context. So here, here come along this semi-historian, because I don't think he's even a historian. He's a, um, a lot of his work is fiction. Um, I, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. So he tells a really, that's one of the criticisms. He tells a very compelling story that drugs were at the center of, um, of this period and also of the man of Hitler. What are your sort of feelings and thoughts about, um, if you've gotten a chance to read this book, but I'm sure there's books like it mm -hmm. that tell an interesting perspective, singular perspective on a war. Yeah, I mean, I, I have read it, and I, I also had this sort of eye-opening experience that a lot of uh, uh, historians did, and they're like, why didn't why didn't we think about this, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, I think uh, whether he's, you know, the, the, the author Oler is, um, you know, sort of not a trained academic historian, but the joy of history is like, you don't have to be one to yeah. write good history. Um, and I don't think anyone, uh, you know, sort of criticizes him for, for that. Um, I like the book as a, as a window into the Third Reich. You know, of course, drugs don't uh, explain all of it, uh, but it helps us see, um, you know, uh, it see, helps us see the people who supported Hitler, um, uh, the ways in which, um, you know, uh, it was that mind-altering and performance-altering drugs were used to kind of keep soldiers on the battlefield, um, the ways in which, um, you know, I think that we we don't fully understand the extent to which the Third Reich is held together with like duct tape um, from um, you know from a pretty early phase by like 1940 or 41 even you know it's all smoke and mirrors and I think that wartime propaganda both Germans trying to say you know we're winning everything and America trying to mobilize uh, and the other allies you know to mobilize against Germany uh, described a more formidable enemy than it really was by 1941 and 42. Yeah, I mean I could see both cases. Uh, one is that duct tape doesn't make the man. But also, as an engineer, I'm a huge fan of duct tape. <laughs> yeah. Because it does seem to solve a lot of problems. And uh, I do worry that this perspective that the book presents about drugs is somehow to the mind really compelling. Because it's almost like the mind, or at least my mind, searches for an answer. How could this have happened? And it's nice to have a clean explanation and drugs is one popular one when people talk about steroids in sports. The moment you introduce the topic of steroids, somehow the mind wants to explain all success in the context was well, because this person was on steroids. Lance Armstrong. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it, it, it like it's a very sticky idea. Certain ideas, certain explanations are very sticky. And I think that's really dangerous because then you lose the full context. And also in the case of drugs, it removes the responsibility from the person, both for the military genius and the evil. Mm -hmm. And I think you, I mean, it's a very dangerous thing to do because so, something about the mind, maybe it's just mine that's sticky to this. Well, drugs explain it. If the drugs didn't happen, uh, then it would be very different. Yeah, it's, it worries me yeah. how compelling it is of an explanation, you know? Yeah. So that's why it's maybe better to think of it as a, a window into the third right yes. than an ex explanation of it. But it's also a nice exploration of Hitler the man. For, for some reason, discussing his habits, especially later in the war, um, his practices with drugs, gives you a, a window into the person. It reminds you that this is a human, this is a human being. Mm 
like a human being get that gets emotional in the morning, gets thoughtful in the morning, hopeful, sad, depressed, angry, like a story of emotions of the human being. It's a, it's a, somehow we construct, a, um, which is a pretty dangerous thing to do, we construct an evil monster out of Hitler, when in reality, he's a human being like all of us. I think the lesson there is the Solzhenitsyn lesson, which is all of us, to some degree, are capable of evil. Um, or maybe if you want to make it less powerful a statement, many of our leaders are capable of evil. That this Hitler is not truly singular in history. That uh, yeah, when the, the the resentment of the populace matches the right charismatic leader, it's it's easy to make the kind of not easy, but it, it's possible to frequently make the kind of uh, initiation of military conflict that happened in World War World War Two. By the way, because you said not a trained historian, one of the one of the most compelling and I don't know entertaining and fascinating exploration of World War One comes from Dan Carlin. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to listen to his sort of podcast form telling of the blueprint for Ar Armageddon, which is the telling of World War One. What do you think about Dan Carlin? You yourself as a historian who has studied, who has written about World War One, do you do you enjoy that kind of telling of history? Absolutely, and I think uh, again, you know, uh, you don't need a PhD in history to to be a historian. Right? Um, Does every know. historian agree with that? Uh, he gets no. quite a bit of criticism from historians. Uh, you know, I mean, we you know we like to argue with each other and nitpick yes. with each other, but um, but uh, the one thing I have no patience for is when we like pull rank on each other. Um, you know, I think um, we depend on uh, you know if you're you know, a historian in a university with degrees and research materials, you know, you depend on the work of people in some local community, like recording oral histories, saving documents. And history is a, it's a social science, but it's also a storytelling art. Um, and, you know, uh, history books are the ones you find on the shelves in bookstores that people read for for fun, and and then and you can appreciate both the the knowledge production um, as well as the storytelling. Um, and when you get a good oral storyteller like Dan Carlin, um, there's a reason that thousands and hundreds of thousands of people tune in. Yeah, but he definitely suffers from anxiety about getting things correct. It's very it's very difficult. Well, our first job is to get the facts uh, the facts correct, yeah. and then and then to tell the story off of those. Because the the facts are so fuzzy, so it's. Uh, I mean, you have the probably my favorite telling of World War Two is William Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and uh, or at least not telling of Nazi Germany, and that goes to primary sources a lot, which is n like. I suppose that's the honest way to do it, <laughs> but it's tough. It's really tough to write that way, to really go to primary sources uh, always. And I think the one of the things that Dan tries to do, which is also really tough to do, perhaps easier in, in oral history, is uh, try to make you feel what it was like to be there which uh, I think he does by trying to tell the story of like individual soldiers. And um, do, do you find that telling like individual citizens? Do you find that kind of telling of history compelling? Yeah, I mean, I think we need uh, historical imagination um, 
And I think historical imagination teaches something very valuable, which is humility, um, to realize that there are other people um, who've lived on this planet and they organize their lives differently and, you know, they made it through just fine too. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that, uh, that kind of, of, of meeting other people from the past can be actually a very useful skill for meeting people unlike you in the present. Unlike you, but also like you. I think mm -hmm. both are, uh, both are humbling. One, realizing that they did lived in a different space and time, but two, realizing that if you if you were placed in that space and time, you might have done uh, all the same things, whether it's the brave good thing or the evil thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you get a, also a sense of um, uh, of possibility. You know, there's this famous line, right, that, um, you know, those who do not learn history are condemned to repeat it. Um, but I think the other half is true uh, as well, which is those who do not learn history don't get the chance to repeat it, right? right. Um, you know, that we're not the first people on this planet to face, you know, any certain kinds of problems. Um, you know, other people have, have lived through worlds like this one before. It's like when you fall in love as a teenager for the first time and, there's, and then there's a breakup, you think it, it's the greatest strategy, tragedy that has ever happened in the world. You're the first person, even though like, Romeo and Juliet and so on had had this issue. You're the first person that truly feels the catastrophic heartbreak of that experience. It's good to be reminded that no, the human condition is what it is. We have lived through it at the individual and the societal scale. Let me ask you about nationalism, which I think is at the core of I Want You poster. Is nationalism destructive or empowering to a nation? And we can use different words like patriotism, hmm. which is in many ways synonymous to nationalism, but in recent history, perhaps because of the Nazis, has has um, slowly parted ways. That somehow nationalism is when patriotism patriotism gone bad or something like this. Yeah, they're they're different, right? Um, patriotism. Um, you know, patriotism is in some ways best thought of as an emotion, right? Uh, and a feeling of of love of country, right? Um, you know, uh, literally. Um, uh, and in some ways, that's a necessary condition to participate in nationalism. Um, you know, whether, to me, I think nationalism is crucial um, in a world organized around nation states. Um, and you have to sort of believe that you are engaged in a common project together, right? Um, and so, you know, in the contemporary United States, uh, you know, uh, in some ways that that question is actually on the table in ways that it hasn't been in the past. But, you know, you have to believe that you're engaged in a common project, that you have something in common with the person with whom you share this nation um, and um, and that you would sacrifice for them, whether it's by paying taxes for them or, um, you know, or going to war to defend them. Um, that's a vision of, you know, what we might call civic nationalism. Um, uh, that's, that's the good version. The question is whether you can have that um, without having um, exclusionary nationalism, you know, hating the other, right? Fearing the other, saying, uh, yeah, be, you're part of this nation uh, against all others. Um, and I think there's a long tradition in America of a very inclusive uh, nationalism. Um, 
that is open, uh, inclusive, welcoming, um, and you know, new people to this shared project, um, that's something to be defended. Exclusionary nationalisms based on you know um, uh, uh, ethnic hatreds and, and others that we see throughout the world, um, those are things to be afraid of. But there is a kind of narrative in the United States that a nationalism that includes the big umbrella of democratic nations, nations that strive for freedom, and everybody else is against is against freedom and against human nature. And it just so happens that it's a half and half split across the world. So that's imperialism. That feels like it beats the drum of war. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't wanna to paint too rosy a picture. And certainly, you know, the United States um, as a nation has often found it easier to define ourselves against something um, than to clarify exactly what we're for. Yeah. Yeah, the Cold War, China today. Not, that's not only the United States. I suppose that's, that's human nature. It's we need a competitor. It's almost like maybe the success of human civilization requires figuring out how to construct competitors that don't result in global war. Yes, or figuring out um, how to turn enemies into rivals and competitors. There's a real difference. <laughs> right. uh, you know, you can you you know you compete with competitors. You you fight with enemies. Yeah, with competitors is a respect, maybe even a love uh, underlying the competition. What lessons? What are the biggest lessons you take away from World War One? Maybe we, we talked about several, but you know, you look back at the 20th century, what, as a historian, what do you learn about human nature, about human civilization, about history from looking at this war? Hmm. I think the, the lesson I would want everyone to take from the story of the First World War uh, is that human life is not cheap. Um, that all of the warring powers thought that just by throwing more men and more material at the front, they would solve their political problems with military force. And at the end of the day in 1918, one side did win that, um, but it didn't actually solve any of those political problems. Um, and in the end, the regular people paid the price with their lives. They did, and people who people who had been told that their lives were cheap uh, remembered that, right? Um, and it sort of you know reshapes mass politics for the rest of the twentieth century, both in Europe and around the world. Yeah, the yeah the cost of a death of a single soldier is not just or a single civilian is not just the cost of that single life, it's the resentment that, the anger, the hate that reverberates throughout. One of the things I, I saw in Ukraine is the birth of, at scale of generational hate, mm -hmm. not towards administrations or leaders, but towards entire peoples. And that hate, I mean, overnight, that hate is created, and it takes perhaps decades for that hate to dissipate. It takes decades and it takes, 
it takes collective effort to build institutions that divert that that hate into into other places. One of the biggest things I thought was not part of the calculus, and when the, the United States invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, is the creation of hate. When you when you drop a bomb, um, even if it hits military targets, even if it kills soldiers, which in that case, it didn't. There's a very large amount of civilians. What does that do to the, yeah, like um, how many years, minutes, hours, months, and years of hate do you create with a single bomb you, you drop? Mm -hmm. And like calculate that, like literally in the Pentagon have a chart, how many people will, will hate us? Uh, how many people does it take? Do some science here. How many people does it take? Uh, when you have a million people that hate you, how many of them will become terrorists? Uh, how many of them uh, will do something to the nation you love and care about, which is the United States, will do something that will be very costly? I feel like there was not a plot and a chart. It was more about short-term effects. Uh, yes, it's again, it's the idea of using uh, military force to solve political problems. Um, and I think there's a, a squandering of of goodwill that people have around the world towards the United States. Um, you know, that's a re respect for, uh, you know, for its economy, for its consumer products and so forth. And I think that's um, uh, that's been lost, uh, a lot of that. Do you think leaders can stop war? I have uh, perhaps a romantic notion, perhaps, because I do these podcasts in person and so on, that leaders that get in a room together and can talk, they can stop war. I mean, that's the power of a leader, especially one with a, uh, in an authoritarian regime, that they can, through camaraderie, alleviate some of the uh, emotions associated with the ego. Yes, leaders can stop war if they get into the room when they understand um, from the masses in their countries that war is something that they want stopped. So the people so, ultimately have a really big say. They do, you know, that it was the it was mass movements by um, people in the United States for the nuclear freeze um, in Russia pushing for for openness that brought, for example, um, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev to Reykjavik to sort of debate, um, you know, uh, and eventually sort of put caps on on nuclear weapons. Um, you know, those two people did, you know, made choices in the room that made that possible. Um, but they were both being pushed um, uh, and knew they were being pushed by, by their people. Boy, that's a tough one. It puts a lot of responsibility on the German people, for example. In both wars, we fans of history tend to conceive of history as a, a meeting of leaders. We think of Chamberlain, we think of Churchill and the importance of them in the Second World War. I think about Hitler and Stalin and think that if certain conversations happened, they could have, the war could have been avoided. You tell the story of how many times Hitler and uh, Nazi Germany's military might was not sufficient. They could have been easily stopped. And uh, the pacifists, the people who uh, believed Hitler were foolish enough to believe Hitler uh, didn't act properly. And if the leaders just woke up to that idea, in fact, um, 
Churchill is a kind of representation of that, but in your conception here, it's possible that Churchill was also a representation of the British people. Even though seemingly unpopular, He that force was, um, they gave birth to somebody like Churchill, who said, we'll never surrender, right? Yes. She'll uh, fight in the beaches. Yes. And it, you know, it's a, I think, uh, World War II Britain is a good example of that. You know, it's, um, it, it is clearly a, you know, a, a dynamic leader who has his pulse on what the people are want and demand and are willing to do. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a dynamic art of, of leading that, uh, and shaping those wants at the same time as, as knowing that you're, you're bound by them. Well, then if we conceive of history in this way, let me ask you about our presidents. You are, are taking on the um, impossibly difficult task of teaching a course in, in, uh, in a couple of years here, or in one year, called The History of American Presidential Elections. So if the people are in part responsible for leaders, how can we explain um, what is going on in America that we have the leaders that we do today? So the if we think about the elections of the past several cycles, I guess, I, let me ask, are we a divided nation? Are we more of a divided nation than we were in the past? What do you understand about the American citizen at the beginning of this century uh, from the leaders we have elected? Yes, obviously, we are a divided country in our rhetoric, um, in our day-to-day -day politics, um, uh, but we are nowhere near as divided as we have been in other periods in our history, right? The most obvious, of course, being in the American Civil War, right, 150 years ago. Um, and the distinction is not just that, you know, we haven't come to blows, um, but that we are fundamentally one society, one economy, um, and sort of, you know, deeply integrated um, as a nation, um, both um, domestically and on the world stage in ways that, um, you know, look nothing like the United States uh, in 1861. Um, you know, will there be, um, you know, will political rhetoric um, continue to be extreme? Of course, um, but, uh, but, but we're, we're not as divided as people think we are. Well, um, then, if you actually look throughout human history, does it, does it always get so outside the people? Do, do the elections get as contentious as they've recently been? Um, so there's a kind of perception that's been very close and there's a lot of accusations, a lot of tensions. It's very heated. It's almost fueling the machine of division. Mm -hmm. Has that often been the case? It has. We are... Um... It hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, I do think right now is, is different. Um, and there it's worth distinguishing, you know, are there deep social or economic divisions, which I don't actually think that there are, versus partisanship in particular, sort of the rivalry between the two parties. And it's very clear um, that we are in an era of what, we, what political scientists call hyper-partisanship. Right, and that the two parties have taken um, sort of um, fundamentally different positions um, and moved further, um, you know, apart from one another. 
Um, and, um, you know, and, and that is um, what I think people talk about when they say our country is divided. So the country may not be divided, even if our politics are highly partisan. That is, uh, you know, a divergence from, from other time periods in our, in our history. So I wonder if this kind of political partisanship is actually a, an illusion of division. I, I sometimes feel like we mostly all agree on some basic fundamentals. <laughs> and and the things that people allegedly disagree on are really blown out of proportion. And there's like a media machine and the politicians really want you to pick a, a blue side and a red side. And because of that, somehow, I mean, families break up over Thanksgiving dinner about who they voted for. There's a really strong pressure to be either red or blue. And I wonder if that's a feature or a bug, whether this is just part of the mechanism of democracy that we want to, even if there's not a real thing to be divided over, we need to construct it such that you can always have a tension of, idea, a tension of ideas in order to make progress, to mm -hmm. figure out how to progress as a nation. I think we're figuring that out in real time, right? On the one hand, it's uh, it's easy to say that it's a feature of uh, of a political system that has two parties, right? Um, and the United States is, in some ways, unique, right, in um, in not being a parliamentary democracy. And so, in some ways, it you would think that would be the feature that is causing uh, partisanship and to reach these heights. That said. Um, you know, we can even see in parliamentary systems and, you know, all around the world uh, that the same kinds of um, rhetorics of, of irreconcilable division, a kind of politics of emotion um, are proliferating around the world. Um, some of that, um, as you say, I think is is not as real as as it appears on t on television, on social media and other formats. Um, so you know, I don't I don't know that other countries are uh, you know, that are experiencing sort of political conflict. Uh, I'm not sure that they're deeply divided either. So I've uh, had the fortune of being intellectually active through the George Bush versus Al Gore election, then the Obama, and it's just every election since, right? And it seems like a large percentage of those elections there's been a claim that the elections were rigged, that there is some conspiracy, corruption, malevolence on the, on the other side. I distinctly remember when Donald Trump won in 2016, a lot of people I know said that election was rigged and there's different explanations, including Russian um, influence. And then in 2020, I was just running in, in Austin along the river and somebody said like, oh, huge fan uh, of the podcast. And they said like, what do you think of it? This is just not right what's happening in this country that um, the 2020 election was obviously rigged uh, from their perspective uh, in uh, electing Joe Biden versus uh, Donald Trump. Do you think there's a case to be made for and against each claim in the full context of history of our elections being rigged? I think the American election system is fundamentally sound uh, and reliable. And I think that the evidence um, 
you know, is is clear for that, um, you know, regardless of which uh, election you're looking at. In some ways, whether even, you know, you look at a presidential election or even a local, you know, county election for dog catcher or something, right? That the, um, you know, the amount of sort of time and resources and precision that go into uh, voter registration, vote counting, um, certification processes are crucial to democratic institutions. I think when someone says rigged, regardless of which side of the political spectrum they're coming from, um, they're looking for an answer um, that, you know, they're looking for that one answer for what is in fact a complex system, right? So, you know, on the left, um, when they say rigged, they may be pointing to a wide range of um, of ways in which they think that the system um, is is tilted um, through you know gerrymandering, um, uh, you know sort of misrepresentation uh, okay. through the electoral college. Um, on the right, when people say rigged, they may be concerned, uh, you know, about about um, you know sort of voter security, about ways in which the media pre may you know mainstream media may control um, messages, um, and in which you know in both cases, the feeling is um, my it's articulated as my vote didn't get counted right, um, but the deeper concern is my my vote doesn't count, you know my voice isn't being heard. Um, so, so no, I don't think I don't think the elections are rigged. So let me sort of push back. Right, there's a comfort to the story that they're not rigged, and a lot of us like to live in comfort. So people who articulate conspiracy theories say, "Sure, it's nice to be comfortable, but here's the reality." And the thing they articulate is there's incentives in close elections, which we seem to have nonstop close elections. There's so many financial interests. There's so many powerful people. Surely you can construct, not just with the media uh, and all the ways you describe both on the left and the right, the elections could be rigged, but literally actually in a fully illegal way, uh, manipulate the results of, of votes. Surely there's incentive to do that. And I don't think that's uh, that's a totally ridiculous argument because it's like, all right, well, um, I mean, it actually lands to the question, uh, which is a hard question for me to ask as ultimately as an optimist of how many malevolent people out there and how many malevolent people are required to rig an election so how, how many, what is the phase transition for a system to become from like uh, corruption light to corruption, uh, to high level of corruption such that you could do things like rig elections, which is what happens quite a lot in many nations in, in, um, in the world even today. So yes, there is interference in elections and there has been in American history, right? And we can go all the way back into the, the you know, 
into the 18th century. Um, you don't have to go back to you know uh, Texas in the 1960s uh, or LBJ to to find examples of of direct interference in the outcome of elections. And there are incentives to do that. Those incentives will only feel more um, existential as hyperpartisanship um, makes people think that the outcome of the elections are, um, you know, are are in, are a matter of you know black and white or life and death. Um, and um, you will see people sort of organizing, sort of um, uh, every way they can to shape elections. Right? We saw this in the 1850s. Right when settlers, you know, pro and anti-slavery, sort of flooded into Kansas um, to try to sort of, uh, you know, uh, determine the outcome of an election, and we see this in the Reconstruction period, right when the Ku Klux Klan shows up to kind of, um, you know, to block the doors for for black voters in the South. Um, you know that the, with our, this history is not new; it's it's there. Um, I think what um, what. The reason why I think that the system is sound is um, is not, or the reason when I say I believe that the election system is fundamentally sound, um, it's not. Um, I'm not trying to be reassuring <laughs> um, or encourage complacency, right? I'm saying like you know this is something that we need to to do and to and to work on. So the the current electoral mechanisms are are sufficiently robust. Even if there is corruption, even if there is rigging, they're robust. Like uh, the force that corrects itself, corrects and ensures that nobody gets out of line, is much stronger than the other incentives, which are like the corrupting incentives. And that's the thing I um, talked about. Corrupt, you know, visiting Ukraine, talking about corruption. What a lot of people talk about corruption as being a symptom, not if the system allows, creates these incentives. For there to be corruption, humans will always go for corruption. That's just, you have to assume that. The power of the United States is that it constructed systems that prevent you from being corrupt at scale. At least, I mean, depends what you believe, but most of us, if you believe in this country, you have to, <laughs> you believe in the, in the self-correcting mechanisms of corruption, that uh, even if that desire is in the human heart, the system resists it, prevents it. So that's That's your... That's your current belief. Uh, yes, as of today. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I do, you know, I do think that those, um, you know, the that will require um, oversight by institutions, ideally ones that are insulated as much as possible from partisan politics, which is very difficult right now. Yes. Um, and it will require um, the the demands of of the American people um, that they you know that they want um, these elections to be to be fair and secure, um, and that means you know that means uh, being willing to lose them, um, you know, regardless of which which party you're you're in favor of. So, what do you think about the power of the media to create partisanship? I'm really worried that there's a huge incentive. Speaking of incentives, to divide the country. In the, in, the, in the media and the politicians, I'm not sure where it originates, but it feels like it's the media. Maybe it's a very cynical perspective on journalism, but it seems like if we're angry and divided as evenly as possible, you're gonna maximize the number of clicks. So it's almost like the media wants to elect people that are gonna be the most uh, div divisive maximizing. And the worry I have is they are not beyond 
either feeding or, if you want to be very cynical, manufacturing narratives that lead that division, like the narrative of an election being rigged. Because if you convinced half the populace that the election was completely rigged, that's a really good way to get a lot of clicks. And and like the very cynical view is I don't know if the media machine will stop the destruction of our democracy uh, in service of getting more clicks. <laughs> it may right. destroy our entire democracy just to get more clicks, just to, because the fire as the thing burns down uh, will get clicks. Is, am I putting too much blame on the media here? Um, the machine of it. You're diagnosing the incentive structure, um, you know, or depicting that with 100% accuracy. Um, but uh, I think history teaches that you might be giving the media too much um, sort of causal power. Um, that, uh, you know, that the American people are smarter than the media that they consume, right? And, um, you know, and even even today, we, we, we know that, right? People who consume, you know, even people who consume just Fox or just MSNBC um, know what they're consuming, right? Um, uh, and, you know, so I don't think that media will be the, the solution. Um, uh, and I certainly don't think that returning to a media structure of the mid 20th century with, you know, three news channels that all tell us one story um, is that's no golden age that we're trying to get back to uh, for sure. Well, there's a, there is a novel thing in human history, which is Twitter and social media and so on. So we're trying to find our footing as a nation to figure out how to think about politics, how to, um, yeah, how to maintain our basic freedoms, our sense of uh, democracy, of our interaction with government and so on, on this new media where medium of social media. Uh, do you think Twitter, how do you think Twitter changed things? Do you think Twitter is good for democracy? Do you think it has changed what it means to be an American citizen? Uh, or is it just the same old media mechanism? It has not changed what it means to be an American citizen. Um, it has. Uh, it may have changed the um, the the day to day sound of of being and you know the the experience of it. Uh, it got noisier. It got louder, um, and it got more um, decentered. Um, I think Twitter is a. It's paradoxical. On the one hand, it is a fundamentally democratic uh, platform, right? You know, any um, and in some ways, it democratizes institutions that um, you know that had had gatekeepers and and you know authority figures for a very long time. But on the other hand, it's it's not a democratic institution at all. It's a for-profit corporation, um, and you know it, it operates under under those principles. Um, and so, you know, that said, it, it's, um, you know, is an institution of American and global life um, that the people of, of the United States have, uh, have the authority to, to uh, regulate or reshape as, as they see fit, both that and, and other major media players. So one of the most dramatic decisions that illustrate both sides of what you're saying is when Twitter decided to ban, I think, permanently the president of the United States, Donald Trump, off of Twitter. Can you make the case that that was a good idea and make the case that that was a bad idea? 
Can you see both perspective on this? Yes, I think, um, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, um, you know, Twitter is a platform. It has uh, rules of service. Uh, Twitter concluded that President Trump had violated the terms of service and, and blocked him, right? And if you have rules, you have to enforce them. Um, did it have, um, you know, did it have consequences? Um, it had direct and predictable consequences, um, you know, that um, of creating uh, a sense among millions of Americans that Twitter um, had taken a side in politics um, or confirming their, their belief that it had done so. Um, will it have unintended consequences? Um, you know, this is where the historian um, can come in and say, yes, um, there's always right. unintended consequences. And we don't know, you know, sort of what um, what it would mean um, for political figures to be excluded from, from various media platforms um, under sort of under under these notions, right, of um, that they had violated terms of service, uh, et cetera. So, you know, so... I guess we'll see as I guess what I would like. Well, to me, so I'm generally against censorship, uh, but to take Twitter's perspective, it's unclear to me in terms of unintended consequences, whether censoring a human being from being part of your platform is going to decrease or increase the amount of hate in the world. So, there's a strong case to be made that banning somebody like Donald Trump increases the amount of resentment um, among people, and that's a very large number of people that support him or even love him or even see him as a great president, one of the greatest this country has had. And so if you completely suppress his voice, you're going to intensify the support that he has from just the regular support for another human being who ran for president, to somebody that becomes an almost uh, heroic figure for that um, set of people. Now, the flip side is uh, removing a person from a platform like Donald Trump might lessen the megaphone of that particular person, might actually uh, level the, the the democratic notion that everybody has a voice. So basically removing the loud extremes is helpful for giving the center the calm, the thoughtful voices, more power. And so in that sense, that teaches a lesson that don't be crazy in any one direction. Don't go full, don't go Lenin, don't go uh, Hitler, don't, don't like uh, you have to stay in the middle. There's divisions in the middle, there's discussions in the middle, but stay in the middle. That's sort of the steel man, the case for, uh, for censoring. Um, but I, boy, is censorship a, a slippery slope? And also, boy, is Twitter becoming a thing that's more than just a company. It seems like it's a medium of communication that we use for um, for information, for for knowledge, for wisdom. Even you know, during the period of COVID, we used it to gain an understanding of what the hell is going on. What should we do? What's the state of the art science? Science fundamentally transformed during the time of COVID because you have no time for the full review cycle that science usually goes through. And some of the best sources of information for me, from the conspiracy theory to the the best doctors, was Twitter. 
the data, the stats, all that kind of stuff. And that feels like like more than a comp more than a company. And then tw Twitter and YouTube and different places took a really strong stance on COVID, which is the lazy stance in my opinion, which is we're gonna listen to whatever CDC or the institutions have said. But the reality is you're an institution of your own now. You're kind of the press. You're like, there's a, there's a, um, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult position. It's a really, really difficult position to take. Uh, but I, I wish they have stepped up and take on the full responsibility and the pain of fighting for the freedom of speech. Yes, they need, uh, they need to do that. Um, but, um, you know, I'm struck by some of the things that you said, ways in which, um, you know, uh, Twitter has the power to shape the conversation. Um, and I don't think in a democratic society, uh, democratic polities should cede that power um, to, to for-profit com uh, companies. Do you agree that it's possible that Twitter has that power currently? Do you sense that it has the power? Because my sense is Twitter has the power to start wars. Like tweets have the power to start wars, to, to yeah, to to change the direction of elections. Maybe in the sense and the ways in which uh, you know uh, a wave has the power to wash away sand, right? Um, you know, it's it's the meat. It's still the medium, right? It's not um, uh, it's not in itself an actor. It's how actors use the platform, um, what, which what, requires us to scrutinize the, the structure of the platform and so access to it. Unfortunately, it's not. Maybe it's similar to the wave. It's not just a medium. It's a it's a medium plus. It's a medium that enables virality. Mm -hmm. that benefits from virality mm -hmm. of engagement. And that means singular voices uh, can can have a disproportionate impact. Like uh, not even voices, singular ideas, dramatic ideas can have a disproportionate impact. And so that actually threatens, it's almost like, uh, I don't know what the equivalent is in nature, but it's a, it's a wave that can grow exponentially because of the intensity of the, uh, the the initial intensity of the wave. Um, I, I don't know how to describe this as a dynamical system, but it feels like it feels like there there is a responsibility there not to accelerate not to accelerate voices just because they get a lot of engagement. You have to have a proportional representation of that voice. Um, but you're saying that a strong democracy should be robust to that. Uh, a strong democracy, uh, can and should and, and and will be. I mean, I think the other thing a historian will tell you about Twitter is that this too shall pass, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but um, but I do think you know the structures of of the of the platform of the algorithm of of this and other major players um, uh, are are eligible for scrutiny by by democratic institutions. So. In preparing to teach the course, The History of American Presidential Elections, leading up to the 2024 elections. So one of the lessons of history is this too shall pass. So don't make everything about, this is this is going to either save or destroy our nation. That seems to be like the message of every single election um, as I'm doing Trump hands. Um, do you think Donald Trump, what do you think about the 2024 election? Do you think Donald Trump runs do you think the the tension will grow, um, or was that a singular moment? Um, 
do you think it'll be like AOC versus Trump or whoever, whatever the most maxim drama maximizing thing, or will things stabilize? Uh, I think I can, I can, you know, historians don't like to predict the future, but I can predict this one that it will not be a calm and, and, and stabilized election. Um, I think as of, you know, the time that we're talking in 2022, we don't, there are too many, um, you know, sort of open questions, particularly about whether Joe Biden will run for re-election. He says he will, but, um, you know, but uh, the jury, I think, is out on that. Um, it, I, you know, I I can't predict whether Donald Trump will run for, for election uh, or not. I think, um, uh, you know, we do know that, that, the, that uh, President Trump doesn't like to to start things he can't win um, and if the polling data suggests that he's not a credible candidate he might be reluctant to, to enter the race and might um, might uh, find more appealing a kind of, the kind of sideline uh, kind of kingmaker role that he's been crafting since he he left the White House um, you know I think there are plenty of people who are uh, you know, dreaming that there's some sort of centrist candidate, um, you know, uh, you know, a, whether it's a conservative Democrat or a liberal Republican who will, you know, save us from, from, uh, from all of this, um, either within the party or in a third party run. I don't think that's likely. Why aren't we getting them? Why don't you think it's likely? What's um, the explanation? There seems to be a general hunger for a person like this. You would, but the system sorts it out, right? You know that the the that the primary systems and the party, uh, you know, party candidate selection systems, um, you know, will favor sort of more, you know, more partisan views, right? More conservative Republicans, more liberal Democrats, um, as the the kind of center candidates. It seems like the system prefers mediocre uh, executor, mediocre leaders, mediocre partisan leaders. If I to take a cynical look, but maybe I'm romanticizing the leaders of the past, and maybe I'm just remembering the great leaders of the past. And uh, yeah, yeah, I can assure you, there's plenty of mediocre partisans in the 19th century. <laughs> okay, and the 20th. Um, well, let me ask you about uh, platforming. Um, do you think Donald? It's a, the Twitter question, but uh, I I was torn about whether to talk to Donald Trump on this podcast. As a historian, what would you advise? I think, uh, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a difficult question, right? Um, for for historians who want, um, you know, sort of want uh, to make sure that they know sort of what Americans are thinking and, and talking about, um, you know, uh, four centuries later. So one of the the things that you know, at least my understanding is that when uh, President Trump was banned from Twitter, his account was also deleted, um, and that is one of the most valuable sources that historians will use um, to understand the the era. And parts of it were sort of, you know, uh, archived and and reconstructed. But um, you know, but in that sense, I think that that is also a real loss to the historical record. Um, I mean, I think that uh, your podcast shows you'll you'll talk to you'll talk to anyone. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I'm here, right? So, right, right. Um, so you know, I'm I'm not in in the business of saying you know don't 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 talk don't talk. To me. That's one of the difficult things when I think about Hitler. I think um, Hitler, Stalin. I don't know if World War One quite has the same intensity of controversial leaders. But one of the sad things from a historian perspective is how few interviews Hitler has given. 
or Stalin has given. Mm -hmm. And that's such a difficult thing because it's obvious that talking to Donald Trump, that talking to Xi Jinping, talking to Putin is really valuable from a historical perspective to understand. But then you think about the momentary impact of such a conversation and you think, well, depending on how the conversation goes, you could steer or uh, flame, what is it, feed the flame of war or conflict or um, abuses of power and things like this. And that's, I think, the tension between the journalist and the historian. Because mm -hmm. when uh, journalists interview dictators, for example, one of the things that strikes me is they're often very critical of the dictator. They're, they're, they're like, um, they're basically attacking them in front of their face as opposed to trying to understand. Because what I perceive they're doing is they're signaling to uh, the other journalists that they're on the right side of history kind of thing. Um, but that's not very productive. And it's also why the, the dictators and leaders often don't do those interviews. Uh, it's not productive to understanding who the human being is. To understand, you have to empathize. Um, because few people, I think, few leaders do something from a place of malevolence. I think they really do think they're doing good. And not even for themselves, not even for selfish reasons. I think they're doing great for the, they're doing the right thing for their country or for whoever the group they're leading. And to understand that you have to, and, and, and by the way, a, a large percent of the country often supports them. I bet if you poll, legitimately poll people in North Korea, they will believe that their leader is doing the right thing for their country. Um, and so to understand that, you have to empathize. So that's the tension of the journalist, I think, and the historian, because obviously the historian doesn't doesn't care. They really want to, they, they care obviously deeply, but they they know that history requires deep understanding of the human being in the full context. Uh, yeah, it's a tough decision to make. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, both for journalists and historians, uh, the challenge is not to be too close to your subject, right? Um, and, you know, not to be um, overly influenced um, and used by them, right? You know, when you're talking to a living subject, which historians do, you know, um, too, um, you know, it's it's a matter of making sure that you triangulate their story with, with the, the rest of the record, right? Um, uh, and that may paint a different picture of, of the person than um, and will prevent you as a journalist or a historian from kind of, you know, just telling someone else's story. Uh, and so, I th and historians also have the benefit of going back, you know, 30, 40 years and finding all the other stories and figuring out, you know, uh, playing two truths and a lie, you know, like which parts are, you know, which parts are accurate, which are, which are not. And, and journalists do that work in a day-to-day -day basis, but historians, um, you know, we get a little more time to think about what we're doing. Well, I, I personally also think it's deeply disrespectful to the populace, to people, to um, censor and ignore a person that's supported by a very large number of people. Like that you owe, I personally feel like you owe the citizens of this country a deep uh, empathy and understanding of the leaders they support. 
even if you disagree with what they say. I mean, that's the, the, the to me, I'm much more worried about the resentment mm-hmm. of the censorship, um, that it's, to having a good conversation with Donald Trump is, is ultimately valuable. Uh, because he, I think, uh, especially in this case, I agree with you that Donald Trump is not a singular person. He is a, he represents a set of feelings that a large number of people have. And whatever those feelings are, you can try to figure out by talking to people, but also talking to the the, the man and then seeing the interplay there. What does this really represent? In this period in history, in this slice of the world, um, yeah. Ultimately, understanding, I think, leads to uh, compassion and love and unity, which is how this whole thing progresses. The tension between the different sides is useful to um, have a good conversation, but ultimately coming up with the right answer and progressing towards that answer is, is how you make progress. Do you think a pure democracy can work? So we have this representative democracy with these contentious elections and so on. When we start a civilization on Mars, which becomes more and more realistic technologically, we can have a more direct access to be able to vote on issues and vote for ideas. Do you think it can work? I don't think we have to go to Mars uh, to do it, right? Um, uh, I think um, the answer is not, you know, to flip a switch and uh, turn on something called pure democracy um, uh, when people are not ready for it, when their uh, incentive structures are not um, sort of uh, structured for it. But you can, um, you know, experiment with more democratic forms of governance one after another, right? Whether it's, um, you know, sort of experimenting with um, technology to find new ways of sort of of getting uh, greater rates of participation in democracy. Um, I think that we see some experiments in um, sort of more complicated systems of voting um, that in fact might actually be more reflective of people's choices than simply picking one candidate, right? Sort of rank choice voting or uh, runoffs, other kinds of things. Um, you know, I think that we can think more uh, creatively about something like participatory budgeting, right? In which, um, you know, uh, we put all this money into the government um, and then, um, you know, we, we um, you know, should, as a, as a people, there are more democratic ways of, of sort of, of how we spend it. Um, and I think the most urgent in some level is a more uh, democratic form of foreign policy making, right? That foreign policy making, decision making um, uh, about the military, about foreign policy, um, is is very ways insulated from from popular participation um, in in modern American history. Um, and I think, you know, there uh, technology is not the the going to solve this. Um, you know, it's a combination of technology and and human creativity. But I think. Um, you know, I think we can start heading that direction. Whether we get there before we get to Mars, I don't, I don't know. What interesting lessons and thoughts, if you look at the fundamentals of the history of American elections, do you hope to reveal when you try to teach the class? And um, how will those fundamentals be met by the, by the students that receive that wisdom? So what, what do you think about this dance? Especially such an interesting idea, and I hope you do go through with this kind of idea, is look at the history while the next one is happening. Yes. I think, you know, it's worth remembering, right, that the students who are 
typical American student who's in college right now, right, has lived their entire life after uh, the election of 2000 and Bush v. Gore, right? Um, and, and after 9-11, probably. And yeah, absolutely, yes. After all of, after all of these things, right? Um, and um, so on the one hand, they take um, partisanship and contentious elections for granted. Um, they don't, I think, share, um, you know, sort of some vision that things were, you know, Things used to be different, right? They don't remember uh, a world that had like lots of moderate Democrats and liberal Republicans, and um, you know, sort of running around in it. Um, but um, you know, so in some ways, it's a way of, of looking back into the past to find other ways of of, of organizing our politics. Uh, it's also a way of of reassuring students that we have been through contentious and even um, sort of violent elections before in our history. Um, and, you know, that people have defended the right to vote, right? People have risked their lives to vote. Um, uh, you know, I think they will, they will understand that, that as well. And maybe knowledge of history here can help deescalate the emotions you might feel about one candidate or another. And uh, uh, from a place of calmness, you can more easily arrive at wisdom. Uh, that that's my hope. Um, yeah. Uh, just as a brief aside, you brief aside, but nevertheless, uh, you wrote the book "Bound by War," that describes a century of war in the Pacific. So, looking at this slice of geography and power. Uh, so most crucially through the partnership between the United States and the Philippines. Can you tell some aspect of the story that is often perhaps not considered when you start to look more at the geopolitics of Europe and Soviet Union and, and the United States? What, how did the, the war in, in the Pacific define the 20th century? Yeah, I came to this book, Bound by War, um, from a sense that... Um, that our stories were too lopsided um, toward toward Europe, right? That American history, when viewed from the Pacific, um, specifically in the 20th century, um, helps us understand American power um, in some new ways, right? Uh, not only American uh, projection of power into Asia, right? But also the ways in which American power affected uh, people in Asia, Right, um, either as uh, you know, in places like the Philippines, where the United States uh, had a colony for almost fifty years, or Asian Americans, people who had migrated or their descendants in the United States, and those linkages uh, between the United States and Asia, uh, particularly uh, the U.S.-Philippine connection, I think, were something that needed to be traced across the twentieth century because it's a way, kind of a new way of seeing American power, you know, from from a different angle. Uh, you see it in in that way. What are some aspects that define America from from when you take the perspective of the Pacific? Yeah. What, what military conflict and and the asymmetry of power there? Right. So 
I start in uh, in 1898, um, you know, with the U.S. invasion of the Philippines, um, uh, its conquest and annexation, uh, and I think in many ways this is a defining conflict of the 20th century that's often completely overlooked or described, uh, uh, I think, incorrectly as merely a war with Spain. Right, that the war in the Philippines um, is our uh, our first extended overseas conflict, our first conflict um, in what would come to be called the developing world or third world. Uh, it's a form of, of counterinsurgency. Um, you know, this is the U.S. Army sort of learning lessons that are then repeated again in the Second World War in Korea, Vietnam, and, and even after 9-11. Is the Philippines our friends or enemies in this history? Well, that's the interesting part, right, is that uh, the book focuses in particular on Filipinos uh, who fight with the Americans, who fought, you know, sort of in the U.S. Army and Navy um, over the course of the 20th century. And they are in a fundamentally ironic position. Right, they are they are from the Philippines and they're fighting for the United States, um, which is the colonial power uh, occupying their country, um, and I think that that irony persists. Right, um, so if you look at sort of polling data, where they ask ev- people all around the world, you know, you know, do you think positively or negatively about the United States, um, that the highest uh, responses are from the Philippines. Right. Filipinos uh, view the United States more favorably than people from any other country in the world, including America. Right, that that they're more think more favorably of Americans than Americans do, um, and so you know, sort of unpacking that irony is is part of what I'm trying to get at in the book. What was the People Power Revolution, and what lessons can we learn from it? You kind of assign an important, um, a large value to it in terms of what we can learn for the uh, the American project. Yeah. So in 1986, um, the, the president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, is overthrown by a, a popular revolution known as people power um, uh, in the wake of a contested and probably uh, almost certainly rigged election. Um, that that sort of uh, you know kind of confirms his 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 rule. Um, when that is over overturned through sort of mass movements in the Philippines. It's also uh, sort of confirmed in many ways by the the reluctance of the United States to intervene to prop up a Cold War ally. Ferdinand Marcos had supported American policy throughout um, his administration. Um, the Reagan administration, Ronald Reagan's president at the time, um, basically chooses not to support him. That's a personally wrenching decision for, for Reagan himself, um, but it, it he's being shaped in many ways by the emerging voices of neoconservative political uh, foreign policy voices, um, in particular uh, Paul Wolfowitz and the State Department and others who see sort of movements for democracy and democratization that then kind of uh, take fire in the late 20th century in Latin America, um, in South Korea, in Eastern Europe, um, and you know all around the world to, until it hits the wall in, in Tiananmen Square in June 1989. Well, what's that wall? Uh, what's, what's the wall? What's the what? What do you mean by it hits the wall? So there are you know the, there are global movements for pot, for democratization uh, for for uh, opening up um, you know throughout the world um, starting in the 1980s um, and you know obviously they continue um, in Eastern Europe with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 um, you know I say it hits the wall in 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 China um, in with the the protests in Tiananmen Square um, that are that are blocked um, and that are crushed and I think represent. Uh, a real sort of turning point um, in the history of of democratic institutions uh, on a global scale in the late 20th century. 
So there's some places where the fight for freedom will work and some places not. And that's the kind of lesson from the 20th to take forward to the 21st century. Uh, no, I think the lesson is, is maybe one that, that, you know, we talked about earlier, that there's this dynamic dance between, um, between leaders, whether, uh, totalitarian leaders or leaders of democratic movements and the people that they're leading. Um, and some, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Let me ask a big ridiculous question. Cause we talked about, uh, sort of presidential elections. Um, now, this is objectively, definitively, you have to answer one person, who's the greatest president in American history? Oh, that's uh, easy. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. How, is that easy? Not George Washington? Um, you know, Washington had his, uh, had the statesman qualities. He understood his power as, as, uh, as the first president. Also uh, relinquished power. He was willing to relinquish power. Um, he, you know, uh, but he, but Lincoln has the combination of personal leadership, um, a fundamental moral character, and um, and just the ability to kind of uh, to fight the, the the fight of politics, to play the game of it, um, to get where he's going, to play the short game and the long game, um, to kind of you know make to uh, you know to work with his enemies to to block them when he had to, um, and you know I mean he. Uh, gets the United States through the Civil War, so you got to give him some credit for that. And it's pretty good at making speeches. Uh, it, you know, obviously it helps that he's a, a, a remarkable speaker um, and able to convey those kinds of visions. Um, but um, you know, but he, but he is first and foremost a politician, um, and probably the best one we have, both at getting elected and at ruling. In some ways, better better at the doing than at the getting elected, right? Um, you know that he, uh, you know, the election of eighteen sixty is a, it's just a, a hot mess. Um, you know that that could have worked out um, many different ways, and even the election of eighteen sixty four. You know, when we have a presidential election in the middle of a civil war, um, it was not a foregone conclusion that Lincoln would be reelected. Um, so you know, both times he sort of. Um, you know, he's not a, a, a master campaigner um, by by any means, but he he was a master uh, politician as a as a governor. Do we have leaders like that today? Is is it so? One perspective is like leaders aren't ain't what they used to be, and then another perspective is well, we always romanticize stuff that happens in the past. We forget the flaws and remember the great moments. Yeah, uh, both of those things are true, right? Um, on the one hand, um, you know, we we don't uh, we are not surrounded by people of of Lincoln's caliber um, right now. That feels uh, like the case, um, and I think that I think we can say that with some certainty. But um, you know, I I always like to point to President Harry Truman, who left office with. You know, some truly abysmal uh, uh, presidential ratings um, was dismissed as a throughout his presidency as a you know as a as unqualified as not knowing what he was doing, et cetera. And then you know, turns out um, uh, with hindsight, we know that he was better at the job than anyone understood. Better at getting elected, right? You remember that sign, Dewey defeats Truman, right? He showed them, right? Uh, and better, better at holding power, and better at sort of. Um, you know, kind of building the kind of institutions that long after he was gone um, demonstrated that he 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 won the long game. 
and some of that is the victors do write the story. And um, I ask myself very much, how will history remember Volodymyr Zelensky? It's not obvious. And how will history remember Putin? That too is not obvious. Um, because it depends on how the role, the geopolitics, the uh, how the nations, how the history of these nations un unravel, unfold rather. So it's very interesting to think about. And the same is true for Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Obama, uh, George Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, and so on. I think it, it's a probably unanswerable question of which of the presidents will be remembered as a great president from this time. You, you can make all kinds of cases for all kinds of people, and they do, but it's unclear. It's fascinating to think about when the robots finally take over, uh, what which of the humans they will appreciate the most. Uh, let me ask for advice. Do you have um, advice for, for young folks as they... Uh, because uh, you mentioned the, the the folks you're teaching, they don't even they don't know what it's like to have waited on the internet for the for the thing to load up <laughs> for every single web page is is suffering. They don't know what it's like to not have the internet and have a dial phone that goes <laughs> and then the, the joy of getting angry at somebody and hanging up with a physical phone. They don't they don't know any of that. Uh, so for those young folks that look at the contention election, contentious elections, that look at our contentious world, our divided world, what advice would you give them of how to have a career they can be proud of? Let's say they're in college or in high school and how to have a life they can be proud of. Oh man, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I've never given a graduation speech. Uh, this, so, this is like warm up. Let's, let's yeah. look for like raw materials yeah. before you write it. Uh, if I did, um, I think um, I think I would advise students um, that history teaches that you should be more optimistic than um, than your current surroundings suggest, right? And I think it would be very easy as a young person today to think um, there's there's nothing I can do about this politics. There's nothing I can say to this person on the other side of the aisle. There's nothing I can do about you know the planet, um, etc., and just sort of give up. Um, and I think history uh, teaches that um, you know uh, we, you know we don't know who the winners and losers are in the long run, but um, but we know that the people who give up are always the losers, right? Um, so don't give in to cynicism or yeah. apathy. Yeah, optimism paves the way. Uh, yeah, because human beings are deeply uh, resilient and creative, even under um, far more difficult circumstances than um, you know than we face right now. Well, let me ask a question that you don't even need to, that you wouldn't even dare cover in your graduation uh, uh, commencement speech. Uh, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? This whole project that history studies and analyzes as if as if there's a point to the whole thing. What is the point? Mm. All the wars, all the presidents, all the struggles to discover what it means to be human of uh, or reach for a higher ideal. Why? Why do you think we're here? Mm. I think this is where there is often a handoff from the historian um, to 
the clergy, (laughs) Um, you know, who, but in the end, um, uh, it's less of, there's less distance between the two than you think, right? That, um, you know, if you think about some of the kind of uh, answers to that question, what is the meaning of life that are given from religious traditions, um, often they have a fundamentally historical core, right? It's about, you know, unifying the past and the present um, in some other, you know, non-earthly um, sort of dimension. Um, and, you know, so I think there is that. I think even for people who who don't have uh, religious belief, um, there's a way in which history um, is about the shared the shared human condition. Um, and I think historians aspire to telling all of that story, right? Um, you know, we we drill down on the on the miseries of of war and depressions and and so forth. But um, but you know, the story is not complete without you know, blueberries and butterflies and and and, and all the rest uh, that that go with it. So, both the humbling and the inspiring aspect that you get by looking back at human history that uh, we're in this together. Christopher, this is a huge honor. This is an amazing conversation. Thank you for taking us back to a war that uh, not often discussed, but in many ways defined the 20th the 20th century and then the century we are in today, which is the First World War. The war that was supposed to end all wars, but instead defined the future wars and defines our struggle to to try to avoid World War III. So it's a huge honor you would talk with me today. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Christopher Capazzola. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Woodrow Wilson in 1917 about World War I that haunted the rest of the 20th century. This is a war to end all wars. George Santana, a Spanish-American philosopher, responded to this quote in 1922 by saying, only the dead have seen the end of war. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time. Thank you.